as the children and the youth go, uh, and as we come to our sermon time, I'd like to open uh, with a word of prayer. Join me. Thank you uh, once again, Lord, for your word this morning, for the nourishment and the um, feeding that it gives to us. We pray, Lord, that you would feed our souls today, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you'd um, break up any fallow ground in the soil of our hearts. Um, use your word in our lives, God, today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times in life when we experience God's power and mercy in unique, supernatural ways, ways that defy explanation. More than a decade ago, in November 2012, I had a massive blood clot in my leg from my ankle to my abdomen with three veins clotted and was hospitalized for a week, initially not allowed to move from the bed. They considered it to be life-threatening. At that time, I began to be under the care of a wonderful and gifted hematologist-oncologist who told me in my first follow-up appointment after being released from the hospital that if the clot was not gone in six months, it would not be gone, as they don't ever see massive clots like this resolve after six months. My response to her at that time was, you do know I believe in miracles, right? I was put on a blood thinner which I was on for a number of years, and I had a venous Doppler test every six months to look at the clot. The first of those early venous Doppler tests showed no progress, which was discouraging. And then the several subsequent tests showed some very slight progress in the clot dissolving, though the clot stubbornly remained in my upper leg and through the groin area for years, test after test. There was a dear brother from our church who regularly prayed for that clot to be gone, Elias Joseph. He didn't seem dissuaded by the need to pray for me continuing on for years, literally years. And he periodically would ask me about it. I typically didn't share much about the clot, especially as so much time went by and it was stubbornly still there. But on a particular Sunday morning in October 2015, basically three years after the clot happened, during our worship service, I felt strongly compelled to speak with Elias about it. I tried to ignore that feeling of compulsion. I tried to talk God out of it, but it wouldn't go away. So after the service ended, I went directly to Elias, and this is what I said. I know you know I have wanted this clot to be gone all along, but now I really want it to be gone, as I want to be able to travel to Africa, and I don't think that I should make that long 15-hour flight with a clot. You see, some beautiful women from the BIC church in Zimbabwe had invited me to visit them, and I really wanted to be able to do so. Elias responded to my words that day with maybe some of the most surprising words I've ever heard. He said that the Lord had told him sometime before then that he was to lay hands on my clot and pray and that it would be healed, but that he was to wait until I really wanted it. The very words I had just spoken to him. So that day, Elias and Idotris Joseph and I went to the prayer room, which is over here in the middle of our sanctuary. If you don't know that we have a prayer room, it's over there. The door's open. We went to the prayer room after the services. Idotris laid hands on the clotted area. Then Elias laid his hands on her hands and prayed. It was short and to the point. Nothing earth-shattering, the lights didn't blink, nothing noticeable happened. We hugged and we parted, we all went home. A couple of weeks later, that time of prayer, a distant memory for me. I was walking our dog in our neighborhood and on my way back to our house, I stopped dead in my tracks just a block or so from our home. 
I stopped and I couldn't take another step because I had this painful sensation shoot through my groin area. As I stood there on the side of the road, out loud I said, God, I don't know if you just did what I think you did, but if you did, thank you. I wasn't scheduled for another venous Doppler test until the following March. So I had five long months to wait to find out if the clot had really cleared. The nurse who called me with the test results that next March left a message that said the test was negative. That's what her message said. I called her back and asked if negative meant that the clot was gone. She said she wasn't sure and she'd be right back. <laughs> and after a couple of minutes, she returned to the phone and she read to me what the Venus Doppler report said. The clot that was previously there has completely resolved. Three years and six months after those veins clotted, three years later than the gifted medical experts said it would be possible to clear, I was thrilled to hear those words, praise God. I was in my car. My car's never been such a place of praise as that day. There are times in life when we experience God's power and mercy in unique supernatural ways ways that defy description, even in the middle of the night, maybe especially in the middle of the night. In late October 2015, the same month in which I experienced the painful sudden rush of blood throwing through, flowing through my veins that had been clotted, I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer detected early in my case, and just two short weeks later, I was heading to the hospital very early in the morning for bilateral mastectomy surgery. Hearing the word that you have cancer is difficult, compounded by the need to have such a drastic surgery. In the weeks before I even knew that I'd have a biopsy, and before I got the hard word from my doctor, the Lord, while I was cooking in my kitchen one day, laid Psalm 23:4 on my heart. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So when I got the hard diagnosis from my doctor, I knew deep in my heart that though I may have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I would not be walking alone. We have this wonderful shepherd who has a rod to beat off the enemy and a staff to guide us through even the most difficult path. So I went into my cancer treatment trusting God and leaning on him. But that didn't take away the normal fears that come with such things. And as you might imagine, I had many emotions the night before going to the hospital. In the days following my surgery, my neighbor was so anxious to see me outside so that she could share with me something that had happened that I knew nothing about. She shared with me that during that night, just before my surgery, she was up in the wee hours of the morning to get a drink of water. And as she looked out her kitchen window, which faces our house, she was amazed to see a white glow surrounding our house. She then immediately corrected me, saying that I was probably thinking it was fog, and she was right. But she said she knew it wasn't fog because the white glow wasn't surrounding any of the other houses in our neighborhood. She had checked. She was confident that the white glow surrounding our house was the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I know the Lord lives in me. So he's always at my house, in me, 
my husband, my sons. But God visited my house in a special and powerful way during that night, and my neighbor witnessed it and then got to tell me about it. I'd been told prior to the surgery that it would be followed by six months of aggressive chemo and radiation treatments. But when the surgery was over and the tumor, the lymph nodes, and all of the breast tissue were tested, there was no further trace of cancer. Either every speck of cancer that had been in my breast was in the tissue sample that was taken for the biopsy, or God healed the cancer. On this side of heaven, I will not know which explanation is correct. But either way is miracul miraculous. And I praise God for the miracle. But I sometimes find myself wondering, was God at work at our home the night before my surgery when my neighbor saw a special glow surrounding our house? Was that when he healed my cancer? The words to a hymn come to mind often over this time for me. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. All you who hear, now to his temple draw near. Praise him in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord who o'er things, or all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thou, thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, if with his love he befriend thee. As we ponder anew what the Almighty can do, we come to our God at work at midnight story for this week. Found in Acts chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 16 to 34. Once when we were praying, sorry, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. 
At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This seems to me to be a perfect story to delve into together as we celebrate Pentecost today, as we celebrate the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit among us, as we celebrate God pouring out the Holy Spirit for us. I recently read somewhere, and I'm sorry, I, I can't recall where. All, I, this week I kept trying to think, where did I read this? But it said that the book of Acts, which in some versions of the Bible is called Acts of the Apostles, that the book of Acts would be better named Acts of the Holy Spirit. The setting for the story, as we learn from the earlier verses of chapter 16, is Philippi, which was a Roman colony in northern Greece, the very first location in Europe where Paul preached the gospel. Think about that for a minute. This is the very first place in Europe where the gospel was preached. According to Acts 16, verses 8 to 12, while in Troas, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is the name of the larger district that Philippi is part of, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. In chapter 15, we learn that Silas began to accompany Paul on what is referred to as his second missionary journey. And then in chapter 16, Timothy joins Paul and Silas. In 1610, just after Paul had received the vision um, during that night, Luke, the writer of Acts, changes the pronoun from they to we and begins writing in first person about the journey. So we assume that the we Luke refers to includes Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, all traveling together. They arrived in Philippi, a Roman colony, which was considered to be the leading city in that region. And since there was no synagogue there, on the Sabbath, Paul and his companions went outside the city gate to the river, expecting to find a gathering of the Jewish people there, the typical place of worship for communities which didn't have enough Jews to form a synagogue. Paul spoke to the women gathered there, a group which included Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, which was rare and expensive, a businesswoman, the first documented convert to Christ in Europe. When she and the members of her household were baptized, Lydia invited Paul and his companions to stay at her home, giving them a needed place from which to minister. N.T. Wright said that you couldn't just walk into the main street of a major city in the ancient world and begin preaching. The authorities would have picked you up in no time. You needed a base, a place from which to operate. And then he gave this great description of Lydia. He said, perhaps it was partly through Lydia's prayers that Paul had received his vision in Troas, the vision of the man begging them to come to Macedonia. And then he said, anyway, the word Paul preached was in Lydia's case, tapping at a window that was already open. I love that description of her, that God was tapping at a window that was already open. She was so yearning for God. With Lydia's home as their base, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke shared the gospel in Philippi. In Acts 16, outlines a day when they were on their way to the place of prayer, possibly back by the river where they had met Lydia. And they were met by a slave girl who possessed a kind of prophetic spirit known as a pythonic spirit with which she predicted the future for a fee. This girl went off script for multiple days following Paul and his crew around the city. And we're told in verse 17, she was shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. When we read things like this in the Bible, we do so through the lens of understanding them through Christ. But words don't always mean what we think they mean. They can have more than one meaning. The Most High God to someone living in Philippi 
wouldn't mean the God of Abraham, the one God of Judaism. It would mean Zeus or whichever deity people thought of as the top God in that local pantheon. And salvation wouldn't mean what it meant to a Jew or to a Christian. Instead, it would mean health or prosperity or rescue from some sort of disaster. So while this slave girl shouted about Paul, while what she shouted about Paul and his company was true, after days of it, Paul became exasperated with this support from this Pythonic spirit. In the pagan context of Philippi, this kind of public support was not only annoying, but also confusing to people. And so we're told in verse 18 that Paul finally became so troubled that he turned around and in the name of Jesus, meaning in the authority of Jesus, he commanded the spirit to come out of her. The spirit obeyed and left the young woman, much to the dismay of her owners who now lost their source of income. The gospel impacted their trade and they turned nasty about it. We're told that they were indignant and seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the civic authorities in the marketplace. I find myself wondering why Timothy and Luke weren't also with Paul and Silas as the story continues on. And we're not told, my best guess, is that the owners were only able to grab two of the four men and drag them before the authorities. Someday we'll know. While the cause of the, these businessmen's ire was a business issue, the accusation that they made against Paul and Silas when they brought them before the magistrates was both racial and political. Philippi, as I said, was a Greek city but it was a Roman colony occupied by veteran Roman soldiers. Paul and Silas were accused of disturbing the peace, literally, literally disturbing the peace, and for promoting Jewish and thus anti-Roman customs among the people. What might their accusers assume these Jewish miss missionaries would be promoting their Roman citizens to adopt? At the very least, they would assume them to be advocating monotheism, one God, and circumcision, both of which were repugnant to the Romans. Beyond that, the customs might also include keeping of non-Roman holidays like the Sabbath, observing food laws, exemption from Roman military involvements, and the list could go on. In their law, Roman conversion to Judaism was a punishable offense. So Paul and Silas were ordered to be stripped and beaten with rods, a painful and demeaning punishment. Paul later refers to this beating in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, when he says, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. And he also referred to it in 2 Corinthians 11.25 when he was recounting the hard work that he had put in for the cause of Christ and the many ways that he had suffered. Paul and Silas, wounded, were then thrown in the local jail and the magistrates ordered the jailer to keep them secure. To do that, he placed them in the innermost cell, the worst place in the prison, and placed them in stocks, which was considered a form of torture reserved for the worst felons. They were treated as the lowest of the low. And in a, log, in a blog post, I, I uh, enjoy reading a blog by Marg Moscow, um, and in a blog po post that she had on Idronicus and Junia, to whom Paul refers in Romans 16 as relatives and fellow prisoners with Paul. Um, Marg Moscow describes prisons and she says, prisons in ancient times were often dark, cramped, putrid, and generally miserable places. Prisoners could be chained or placed in stocks. And she also shared that women prisoners could be sexually abused by prisoners or prison guards. That, was not, that it was not an uncommon experience for female prisoners. 
This doesn't apply here in this story, but it's hard to think about with Junia or other female believers who had been imprisoned. Further, Moscow shares that if prisoners were not freeborn Roman citizens, which Paul and Silas were, but this wasn't yet known by the authorities, if prisoners were not freeborn Roman citizens, their imprisonment would most likely have involved torture. Paul and Silas, in spite of their mistreatment, their humiliation, their discomfort, they remained composed. Later, writing to the Philippian church, Paul exhorted the Philippians in chapter 1, 27 to 30. He said that whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. And perhaps Paul was referring to this day. Paul and Silas endured their mistreatment and jail punishment joyfully, trusting in God. So about midnight, Luke tells us in Acts 16, 26, they were praying and singing hymns to God. We don't know the lyrics to their song, but perhaps they were singing some of the Psalms, the songbook of the church. Psalm 42, 8 says, By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Psalm 63, 7 and 8 says, On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Midnight was one of those watches, one of the times when guards changed. The psalm goes on, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you, your right hand, and who's at the right hand of God? Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 92, 1 to 2 says, it is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, which reminds us of the name of God that the servant girl kept calling out. O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. And then Psalm 107 has these verses. Some sat in darkness and the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the deepest gloom and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men, for he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Whatever Paul and Silas were singing, whatever they were saying as they prayed, we know they had an audience. The other prisoners were listening to them. One writer said such sounds as these were new in a Roman dungeon. Whoever the other prisoners might be, whether they were the victims of oppression or were suffering the punishment of guilt, debtors, slaves, robbers, or murderers, they listened with surprise to the voices of those who filled the midnight of the prison with sounds of cheerfulness and joy. Still the apostles continued their praises and the prisoners listened. And suddenly, while they were singing and praying, as if in direct answer to the prayers that Paul and Silas uttered, we're told that there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison were shaken. Earthquakes were not uncommon in this part of the world, but this one was timed perfectly for a potential prison break. It shook the foundation of the prison. It likely, likely it didn't come as a surprise to Paul and Silas. God had worked a similar miracle of prison release for Peter. We're given this story in Acts 12. That incident of release involved an angel and was much more quiet. The chains fell off Peter. Peter and the angel had the ability to pass by all of the guards and the iron gate opened by itself. This incident of release involved an earthquake Nothing quiet about it. All of the doors opening at the same time. All of the stocks becoming loose. God showed up at midnight in a powerful way. When we read this story, we do through, 
we do so through the lens of knowing what God had the potential to do. We know what he had previously done for Peter, for instance, or what he had done generations earlier in rescuing the Israelites from their bondage, or most significantly, what God had done in raising Jesus, rescuing us from our bondage to sin and death. We read this story knowing that nothing is beyond God's ability or his love. We're impressed, but we're not surprised. But imagine Paul and Silas's fellow prisoners. What was their perspective of this event? Paul and his companions are bringing the gospel to Europe, to the district of Macedonia, to the city of Philippi for the very first time so they don't yet know the truth. The people are steeped in Roman life, which would be anti-Jewish life. These prisoners may know nothing at all about God or about Jesus. So hearing fellow prisoners trustingly praying to a God you don't know and joyfully singing in the middle of the night while in the depths of the prison had to have been a shock. And then you add to all that, this God shows up with his power over nature through an earthquake at just the right time. Wow. Truly, something was going on in that prison that defies description or understanding. Think about this for a minute. If all of the doors opened in a prison and all of the shackles fell off the prisoners, what would you expect to happen next? Of course, we would expect to see a mass exodus of the prisoners, people anxious to take advantage of their sudden, unanticipated freedom. We'd expect to see them racing to get out while they can, tripping over one another to be the first one out of there. But that's not what happened. As you read this, do you ask yourself, why? Why did they not leave? Luke proceeds to give us the story from the jailer's perspective. It was midnight. There had just been an earthquake. The prison he was in charge of had burst open. He was going to be held responsible for escaped prisoners, which probably meant that he was going to be tortured and he was going to be killed. And he intended to fall on his own sword instead of being killed as punishment. And as he drew his sword, Paul called out and told him not to harm himself, that they were all there. I can only imagine the shock and the relief of that news to that jailer. Why did none of the prisoners leave even though they could have? Luke doesn't give us an answer to this question. Nor does he tell us what happened to all of the prisoners as the story now shifts focus to the jailer. But as I thought and prayed about it this week, the scripture that the Lord brought to mind to me is from John 6. I'm not suggesting this is the answer, but this is what God brought to mind. John 6, after Jesus did two of his astounding miracles, feeding the thousands with five loaves of barley bread and two fish and walking on the water, he shared some very hard and challenging words with his followers. In John 6, verses 66 to 69 of that passage say, from this time, many of his, his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I wonder if the prisoners' hearts echoed those words. You have the words of eternal life, knowing that Paul and Silas had introduced them to Jesus, and maybe they just didn't want to leave. After the jailer rushed in to see for himself that all the prisoners were still there, he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. There was just so much for him to take in, so much emotion for him at that moment. 
he was cut to the heart by the mercy extended to him by Paul and Silas. They voluntarily chose to remain in their imprisonment and their decision to stay in jail led to freedom for the jailer and his household. Luke then tells us that the jailer took them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? We don't know whether the jailer meant his question in the spiritual sense that we typically read into it, focusing on spiritual salvation, or whether he meant it in the way that N.T. Wright's bishop translates it. Will you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? N.T. Wright, about this difference, wrote this. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus is always the answer to the question of how to be rescued at whatever level and in whatever sense. In other words, Paul and Silas address both the very specific question the jailer has asked and the deep, world deep, heart deep, God deep question, which with practiced eye, they can see lies beneath it. We're told in verse 32 that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all the others in his house. The jailer then washed their wounds, followed immediately by being washed in baptism with all of his household. The phrase, Jesus is Lord, is what from the earliest times people said as they came for baptism. Jesus is Lord. And the jailer and his household joined in that chorus when God came into their lives that night. Paul later wrote these words to the Philippian church. He said, therefore, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul and Silas and all of the prisoners were released from their shackles through that midnight display of God's power. And the jailer, above all the others, experienced the ultimate freedom that night, no longer running his own life, but submitting it to the lordship of Christ Jesus. And the good news for us today is that the God who came at midnight to a Philippian jail, the God who helped his beaten and imprisoned servants to pray and to sing, the God who grabbed the attention of the worst of the prisoners, the God who shook the earth and opened the doors and loosened chains, and the God who released the oppressed jailer and all of his household that night from the bondage of the kingdom of darkness as they proclaimed the Lordship of Christ, that same God, that same God, is helping us to pray and sing even when our circumstances are difficult. That same God is calling us to live our faith for a watching and listening world. That same God is opening prison doors and breaking the chains that have us bound, releasing us from our captivity and oppression. That same God is calling us to experience salvation, wholeness, healing, by living under his lordship. Regarding praying, Mother Teresa wrote, prayer enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. Ask and seek and your heart will grow big enough to receive him and keep him as your own. May we grow to be more and more like Paul and Silas, practicing the spiritual disciplines of prayer and of worship, asking and seeking, enlarging our hearts for God to dwell there. And then regarding our Christian witness, just as the fellow prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas, those in our circles are listening to the words that come from our mouths. They're watching the ways we live. I took a group of youth on a missions trip to Nicaragua 20 years ago. And the missionary that we worked with at that time shared something that challenges me to this day. I often think of his words. He said that people are watching not only our actions, but also our reactions. 
are my words, my actions, my reactions, helping others to draw closer to knowing Jesus. And then regarding the chains that bind people today, the hidden things in our lives, things we cling to in secret, like unforgiveness or pornography, or like the suffocating debt of financially living beyond one's means. These kinds of hidden, secret things have us in the darkest, deepest, most oppressive prisons. I remember reading something when I was in college. I think it was in Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. I've never found it. I, I, I don't go looking for it. I need to go look for it to see if it's there. But I was so struck by what this author said. He said that the things that we want to do in public for show, for getting the glory for them, the things that we want to do in public, we should do in private. And the things that we want to do in private, they're hidden because they're sin. The things that we want to do in private, we should have to do in public. As long as they're hidden, we'll be in chains to them. And it's confession that breaks the chains. There's a wonderful book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. It's a wonderful book by Tyler Stanton. And in it, about confession, he wrote this. He said, in the ancient Near Eastern world from which the Bible emerged, successive cultures built cities right on top of the ruins of old ones. People didn't bother developing new land. They just burned down what, was used, what used to be there and built a new city right on top of the old. An archeological dig in the Near East is discovering one period of history and then another period that is a layer beneath that and then another. It's as though we need to wipe the dust off of story after story. And then he says, that's confession to excavate down into the layers of your own life, uncovering not just what's obvious on the surface, but the layers of personal history underneath that continue to inform your present. And then regarding salvation, wholeness, healing, the story of Wilma Rudolph that I recently read in a blog by Tilm Elmore came to mind to me this week. Elmore wrote, Wilma was born in 1940, one of 22 children in an African-American family living in Tennessee. As a child, they just hoped Wilma would survive. She caught double pneumonia and struggled with scarlet fever. Wilma needed help making it through the day. Then at a young age, she contracted polio. At the time, there was no vaccination for it. She and her mother drove 100 miles each way to see a doctor who would treat black patients. Her doctors put her legs in braces and told her she would never walk again. Her mother said she would, and she chose to believe her mom. Do you know Wilma Rudolph's name? She fought to live, to walk, and later to run. She became so fast that as a 16-year-old, she qualified for the Olympics. She won a bronze medal. And then four years later, she won three Olympic gold medals, breaking records in all three. She became the fastest woman in the world. I love the line that she chose to believe her mom. Her mom who clearly loved her and made sacrifices for her. But I would imagine her mother did more than tell her that she would walk. I imagine that her mother did all that she could to see that she walked, pushing her to do so, giving her all that she needed in order to do so, giving her guidance, both in terms of what she should do and shouldn't do. And I imagine that she would have had to have submitted to her mother's leadership that's what the lordship of Christ is like, his loving leadership in our lives and our submission to it.
as we do what he says and as we don't do what he says not to do, claiming with our lips and our lives that he is Lord, we'll also grow in our ability to walk and then to run. While Paul and Silas were held captive in jail, God showed up at midnight in a powerful way, leading to transformation for the jailer and all of his household, and hopefully leading to freedom and transformation in our lives today as well. As we come to the close of our service, as the worship team comes, we'll be singing together the song, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. And whether there's something that you need to share with a brother or sister as part of finding freedom, as part of unlayering your life, or if there's anything that you need to pray about with someone this morning, we invite you to come to the front and pray while we sing as the pastors come to the front. And I said at the beginning, we have a prayer room. If privacy would be preferable, you can always go to our prayer room to pray. It's always available. Let's stand together and sing. gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this
grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. We thank you, God, today for Jesus. Thank you for redeeming us. Lord, thank you for being our joy, giving us words to sing and to pray, even in darkness, God. We thank you that you're our righteousness, and we thank you for breaking chains, God, in our lives. If there are any remaining, Lord, we pray that you would break them. May your steadfast love be our deep and boundless peace.